In St. Martinville, Louisiana, a statue of a woman sits alone in the courtyard of St. Martin de Troyes Catholic Church. Her name is Evangeline, an Acadian maiden immortalized by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in his epic poem by the same name. In Longfellow's poem, Evangeline, Longfellow tells a tale of a young Acadian girl, Evangeline Bellefontaine, engaged to her beloved, Gabrielle Lingenes, in their forced separation as the British deported the Acadians from Acadia in an event known as the Grand Derangement or the Great Upheaval. Longfellow's poem begins with the end. The French fishermen and farmers then once inhabited the colony of Acadia in Nova Scotia are gone. The moss-covered trees and the oceans are left to tell the tale. This is the forest primeval but where are the hearts beneath it? Leaped like the roe when he hears the woodland, the voice of the huntsman. Where is the thatched roof village, the home of Acadian farmers? Men whose lives glided on like rivers that water the woodlands. In 1755, the French and Indian War would seal the fate of the peaceful people inhabiting the rich lands of Nova Scotia, known as Acadia. The war would have a devastating impact on the Acadians, and the English would carry out the ethnic cleansing and forced removal of Acadians from the land that they inhabited for well over a century. In this episode, we discuss the banishment of Acadia, a heartbreaking tale of forced exile. In mythology, Acadia is where the god Pan resides, along with dryads, nymphs, and other spirits. It is believed that it was a utopic place where the gods could dwell on earth. So when Giovanni de Veranzo set off to explore the Atlantic coast of North America in 1524, he deemed Acadia a fitting name for the region. Cartographer Bolanino Zaltieri gave a similar name, La Gadia to an area far to the northeast of present-day Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. In 1604, the French began to colonize the region of Acadia, and though there would be challenges that come with any colonial settlement, this paradise would be caught in the middle of two warring empires, France and England. Acadia would change hands between the French and English six times before the Treaty of Utrecht was signed in 1713, when the French were to cede Acadia to the English for the final time. However, the Treaty of Utrecht failed to clearly define where the boundaries of Acadia were. For the French, the territory only included the present peninsula of Nova Scotia. The English, however, claimed that it was New Brunswick, Gaspé, and present-day Maine. With the constant changing of the guard, the Acadians grew to be neither French nor English. Though originally French, they were largely ignored by France, and the Acadians grew to be very independent-minded. They even forged a strong friendship and allied themselves with the native Mi'kmaq. 
After decades of maintaining some type of neutrality between France and Britain, the Acadians felt secure in their sovereignty, even when their land passed into the possession of Great Britain after 1713. And to be honest, they really had no reason to doubt their independence. For decades after the Treaty of Utrecht, the British authorities virtually left the Acadians to their own devices as long as they maintained neutrality in whatever conflict were happening between the French and the English. However, though, in 1730, as tensions with New France began to threaten New England, British authorities would persuade the Acadians to swear, if not to allegiance, at least to neutrality in any conflict of war between France and Britain. Neutrality, however, would become more and more precarious. The Acadians would witness France heightening tensions with the building of Fort Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island. In 1741, the English countered this threat by establishing a naval base at Halifax. The French would then build Fort Bezougeot on the Isthmus of Chignecto in 1751. In response, the English would build Fort Lawrence not too far away. Most British governors had virtually ignored the Acadians and had been conciliatory to their needs. However, a new governor, Governor Charles Lawrence, felt it was time for the Acadians to do away with their neutrality, and he was prepared to take drastic measures in doing so. He saw the Acadians not as peaceful farmers and fishermen, but a question of national security, and was prepared to take military action against them if given a reason. Lawrence, however, would not have to wait very long for that reason to present itself, as the French and Indian War began the English were able to capture Fort Bezougeois from the French in June of 1755. What Lawrence discovered there was all the reason he needed to act against the Acadians. Lawrence noted that there were some 270 Acadian militia among the fort's inhabitants, fighting with the French. So much for their professed neutrality. Upon finding the militia of Acadians, Lawrence demanded that the Acadians swear loyalty to the King of Great Britain. He would issue a proclamation addressed to the Acadians. In so far as the great inhabitants have not yet made their submission to the King of Great Britain, but on the contrary have behaved toward their own sovereign against all orders and laws, this proclamation orders them to return immediately to my camp to make their submissions, bringing with them all their weapons, firearms, swords, sabers, pistols, and other instruments of war, or disobeying they will be treated as rebels with military execution. Unsure of what to do next, the Acadians went to a Frenchman that had allied himself with the English, asking him to advocate on their behalf. The Acadians asked the Frenchman to communicate that they were only there at the coercion of the French. The Frenchman, though, advised the Acadians to put their trust in the British. Over the next several days, hundreds of Acadians would surrender their arms, and the Acadians would be put to work clearing away rubble and repairing the fort. As war with the French heated up, Governor Lawrence felt there was only one way to ensure that Chignecto remained in firm British control. He wrote, the only sure way was by total extirpation of the French and by French 
I mean both Acadians and Canadians. He congratulated Colonel Robert Monckton for capturing and defending Fort Bezujol. He specially congratulated Monckton in negotiations of capitulation, writing of the Acadians, quote, their pretending to have been forced to take up arms is an assault upon common sense, and as it deserves the severest treatment, I am glad to find you have carefully avoided in your articles of capitulation with granting anything to the inhabitants that may entitle them to the future enjoyment of their lands and habitations. Were the Acadians to remain, they will prove forever a sore thorn in our side. With their help, the French may be able to do much against us. Without them, I think nothing of much importance. When writing to Sir Thomas Robertson and the Board of Trade in London, Lawrence informed them that now was the time to strike at the Acadians, writing, I have given him orders, Monckton, to drive them out of the country at all events. Lawrence, however, did offer peace with the Acadians if they would sign an oath of allegiance to the King of Britain. Why, though, would they not do this? Well, the Acadians were Catholic and felt that signing an allegiance to a Protestant king would betray their Catholic faith. Lawrence came down hard on the Acadians. It was then agreed that the task of removing the Acadians would be assigned to New England troops, with the expectation that those New Englanders tasked with deportation would repossess and resettle the Acadians' land. Lawrence wrote in a summary report for the Board of Trade, he was determined to bring the inhabitants to compliance or rid the province of such perfidious subjects. The faithless Acadians were to be driven out of the country. He informed the board that he would not write again for three months, by which time the deed would be done. A group of Acadians exiled in Philadelphia would defend themselves against Lawrence, pleading, no consequence can be justly drawn that because those people, the Acadians of Shignecto, yielded to the threats and persuasions of the enemy, we should do the same, they argued. Their pleas, however, fell on death years. Because while Lawrence felt that the Acadians were a military risk, he also saw their land as an opportunity for the British. Their land was fertile, and it was good fishing. For other colonial governors, they saw Acadia as a way to alleviate some economic stress on their colonies. At this time, Boston was exploding with immigration, and there was not enough land for the British seeking opportunity in North America. With Acadia vacant, that meant that more settlers and British settlers could resettle that land on tried and true fertile ground. An anonymous letter was sent to Lord Halifax on August 9th, 1755, saying, quote, We are now upon a great and noble scheme of sending the neutral French out of this province, who have always been secret enemies, and have encouraged our savages to cut our throats. If we effect their expulsion, it will be one of the greatest things that ever the English did in America. For by all accounts, that part of the country they possess is as good land as any other in the world. In case, therefore, we could get some good English farmers in their room, this province would abound all kinds of provisions. This letter was then published in British colonial newspapers, informing the colonists that Acadia was soon up for grabs. To discourage them from returning, the New Englanders systematically devastated the Acadian farmsteads, 
burning buildings, killing or dispersing livestock, and breaking the dikes by which the Acadians had reclaimed coastal land for agriculture. Those exiled to Philadelphia wrote, We were all immediately made prisoners and were told by the governor that our estates, both real and personal, were forfeited to your majesty's use. Notwithstanding the solemn grants made by our fathers, by General Phillips, and the declaration made by Governor Shirley of Massachusetts, we found ourselves at once deprived of our estates and liberties without any judicial process or even without any accusers appearing against us. And this solely grounded on mistaken jealousies and false suspicions that we are inclined able to take part with your majesty's enemies. The British deportation campaign began on August 11, 1755. Throughout the expulsion, many families would flee to Canada, hoping for refuge among the French. Others whose husbands, sons, and fathers had been taken captive by the British for refusing to swear allegiance had no choice but to surrender themselves to the English ships scheduled for deportation. One Acadian wrote, Families were seized and thrown pell-mell into the transports. No one was granted any grace. The least resistance meant death. Terror was everywhere. They succeeded in filling several vessels full of inhabitants. Children were separated from parents, husbands from their wives, brothers from their sisters. Brooke Watson, Moncton's assistant at the time, lamented, saying, quote, I fear some families were divided and sent to different parts of the globe, notwithstanding all possible care was taken to prevent it. However, in the chaos and confusion and the rush to deport as many Acadians as possible, families were constantly separated. In the book, The Great and Noble Scheme by John Mac Farragher, he writes, Despite Winslow's orders, numerous families remained divided. Notary René Leblanc, his wife, and his two youngest children were boarded on one vessel, his other four minor children to another. Twelve adult children with their spouses and some 150 grandchildren were put on yet other transports, and the families thus scattered in colonies from Massachusetts to Virginia. This was just the immediate family, and since Acadians had a highly extended sense of kinship, it was inevitable that nearly all the families were fractured and dispersed. A group of exiles wrote that parents were separated from children and husbands from wives, some of whom have not to this day met again. In the end, it proved absolutely impossible to keep families together. By the end of 1755, approximately 7,000 Acadians had been deported as de facto prisoners of war. Governor Shirley and Lawrence expected that most would be sold as indentured servants in the colonies, to which they were sent to serve for whatever contractual. Local authorities believed that the Acadians would soon learn to speak English, forget their Catholic religious identity, and assimilate into colonial populations as loyal British subjects. It is clear the goal was to transform her purged province by resettling it with Protestant immigrants from New England, Scotland, and Germany. This really is the first instance of what the late 20th century would label ethnic cleansing. The majority of Acadian exiles were sent to rural areas in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and South Carolina during the first wave of expulsion. 
In general, they refused to stay where they were sent, and a substantial number of them went to colonial port cities where they gathered in isolated, destitute, French-speaking Catholic neighborhoods, the type of groups that Britain's colonial rulers intended to prevent. Worryingly for British authorities, some Acadians had threatened to relocate north to French-controlled areas such as the St. John River, Cape Breton Island, and the Gulf of St. Lawrence Coast in Canada. The British deported Acadians to France during the second wave of deportation. Some Acadians, though, who were sent to France never arrived. In 1758, the cargo ships Duke William, Violet, and Ruby sank while making their way from Prince Edward Island to France, killing about a thousand people. Approximately 3,000 Acadian refugees finally congregated in French port cities and traveled to Nantes. Many Acadians transferred to Britain were confined in overcrowded warehouses and were susceptible to plagues as a result of the close quarters. Two-thirds of the Acadians in the peninsula escaped the first wave of deportation. Some established refugee settlements in the St. John River Valley, in what is now New Brunswick. Others took refuge with the Mi'kmaqs, beginning a long guerrilla struggle against British power in the peninsula. The British waged ruthless campaigns aimed at clearing Nova Scotia's lands of all Mi'kmaq and any refugee Acadians they harbored. Joseph Broussard became a leader of Acadian resistance. He led assaults against the British on several occasions between 1755 and 1758. After arming a ship in 1758, Broussard traveled through the Upper Bay of Fundy region where he attacked British settlements. His ship was seized in November of 1758. He was then forced to flee. He would be caught and later imprisoned at Fort Edward in 1762. He was then transferred and imprisoned with other Acadians in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He would be released in 1764, the year after the signing of the Treaty of Paris. The Seven Years' War was now over. Broussard, along with hundreds of other Acadians and their families, sought to seek a life in Saint-Domingue, or present-day Haiti. However, disease and the inability to adapt to the climate began to kill many of the Acadians. It was then that Broussard led a group to settle in Louisiana. He would be among the first 200 Acadians to arrive in South Louisiana on February 27, 1765, aboard the Santo Domingo. He was appointed the militia captain and commander of the Acadians of Atacabas, the area around present-day St. Martinville. Thousands of Acadians sought a new life in Louisiana. They settled in the Bayou Country, where they hunted, fished, trapped, and lived off the bounty of the Mississippi River. The Acadians became known as Cajuns, as they adapted to their new home. Their French changed, as did their architecture, music, and food. Today, Cajun culture is praised for their ability to hold on to tradition while making the most of the present. The deportation would take place from August of 1755 to July of 1764. It is estimated that anywhere from 10,000 to as much as 20,000 Acadians were deported. The exact number, though, is not known as the British burned property records and homes to prevent the Acadians from making future claim to their land lost. As Governor Lawrence instructed his officers, 
quote, you must proceed by the most vigorous measures possible by burning their houses and destroying everything. Longfellow wrote in his poem, Ye who believe in affection that hopes and endures and is patient, ye who believe in the beauty and strength of a women's devotion, list to the mournful tradition still sung by the pines of the forest. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as we are continuing down this road to revolution. Please make sure to like this video and subscribe so that you'll get notified every time I post a new episode. Thank you guys so much for watching, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye.